Again, chapter 9, we are now at the tail end of the flood account. So read along with me, if you would, please. Again, chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And we read this. So God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. And the fear of you, and the dread of you, shall be on every beast of the earth, and every bird of the air, and everything that moves on the earth, and all the fish of the sea that are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely, in your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, and for the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful. And multiply, bring forth abundantly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, and all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is a sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations I set my rainbow in a cloud, and it shall be a sign for a covenant between me and the earth. It shall be that when I bring a cloud over the earth, that that rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark then were Shem, Chem, and Yafith. Now that Ham was the father of Canaan, uh, these three were the sons of Noah, and from them the whole earth was populated. Now Noah became a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. And then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. I find it interesting. God makes very clear the, some form of strange allegiance between nakedness, which is paralleling with shame, and, and that of drunkenness. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Yepheth took the garment, laid it on their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their fathers, let me say, their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew that his younger son had done to him. And so he said, Cursed be Canaan, the servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. Then he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Yepheth. And there will be a play on words there. I'll explain it when we get there. And may he dwell in the tents of Shem and be, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noach lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noach were 950 years and he died. Will you pray with me, please? God, I thank you for the privilege of opening up your word and expecting you to do glorious things. You've made clear, Lord, in your book of Yeshiachu, the book of Isaiah, that as snow falls down to the ground and does not rise up again without watering the ground it lands upon, bringing it, letting it, allowing it or bringing it to bud and flourish, 
bring forth bread to the one who eats, so is your word. It never returns empty, but accomplishes all that you desire. And God, I pray that your word would do everything you desire it to do now. Lord, I pray that as it is sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit, and is the discerner, the intents of the thoughts of a man's heart. Well then, Lord, do whatever cutting you want to do through your word. And God, in that, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you bring conviction, you bring encouragement. Let this be a fun time in your word. Let it be a a, a time, Lord, where we could draw closer to you and be intimate and just say, this was such a wonderful, radical encounter with my God and Savior. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us individually as well as corporately. God, that you would have your way. And Lord, that you would immerse me in your spirit, that I would disappear. And that you would then fill me to overflowing, Lord, that you would do through me that which I cannot hear. Do communicate, Lord, profoundly to each of us what you want us to hear in this text. And in that, Lord, may we now draw close to you and be forever changed. So, Lord, we come with fertile soil in our hearts for the planting of your word to inculcate it into our lives that we may not only grow thereby, but, Lord, that which is even able to save our souls. So, Lord, save encourage, challenge, rebuke where necessary, correct where necessary. Lord, and and just bring strength to us, we pray, that we as a family could see what you have for each of us individually, as in our callings, but corporately as a body as well. And so, Lord, we deem every second we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say this morning as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Now let me sort of put us where we're at in things. Um, what we were, again, we sort of saw the uh, 1651. We saw the uh, from the beginning of creation, we saw this flood. The flood lasted, if you remember, a year and 17 days, uh, a year and 10 days. And so what we saw in all of that, of course, is God now pronouncing punishment. And again, after two groups of people, and that will be very fundamental as he builds this system for us to understand the entire rest of this big, beautiful book, this, this concept of those who are living under the governance of the living God, calling on the name of God, and then those who have no interest in the living God, who are dwelling outside of the presence of God. Uh, and with such people, you just find that sooner or later, one is going to win influence over the other. And that becomes the case with every one of us, just like it does in regards to society as a whole. Uh, what we read is, is that, again, pandemically, there is a radical influence. Uh, clearly with the lineage of Cain, and it's important to note that's his name, because that's going to play into this, uh, that with the family of Cain, here is a guy who two things are very sort of typical of that society. Uh, as sort of he, has a, he has a kid, and he has a kid, and he has a kid, and that is, one is violence. We saw that with Cain, we see it all the way done with Lamech, who not only kills a man, but boasts over it uh, to his two wives. And then the other thing, of course, is this big aspect and the way that women are treated. Now, I'm not trying to be social in all this. I'm just trying to make clear that in Cain's world, those dwelling outside of the presence of God, these become two things that God says are very just typical to his society, to the world he lives in. It's about a violence. It is about sex. uh, And it's just, that's just the way it is. And it's interesting because it has never changed. We shouldn't expect it to change. And those who aren't calling on the name of God, that's what you're going to find. Because God created a hole inside of us for Him to fill. Then He gave us natural appetites for which God Himself is seeking to give us a specific menu. And man says, no, I'm not interested in that. And that's exactly what Romans 1 says. Is that the the biggest sin we deal with is not going to be just simply lusting after or wanting something. It's trading God in and what God wants for us for what 
the world offers us instead. And, and clearly, that's what we find. Now, again, that's Cain's line. That's his family. That's his world. And his world, again, is one. And it's all about violence. It's all about the way that it's sort of like this is the way life is treated. Is it sort of inconsequential? And this is the way that women are treated. It's to get as many as you can. And on the other side, you have Seth, who then again is investing in uh, people. And we, get, we see that lineage of people. But then again, we see that ultimately one's going to win influence over the other. And by the time we get to right before the flood, what God tells us is that the entire society now, that Seth and you know, Cain's line, are both now violent. Because it tells us that these guys who are under the governance of God, that are sons of God, I mean, here's God being a parent to these people, but they look over and they see the daughters of, of Cain's family, and they just look and say, well, not girls, hot. And I just, why be in this when I could be a part of that? And so what happens is ultimately, those that are following under, the, that are calling on the name of the Lord aren't calling on the name of the Lord because they're too busy trying to get digits from someone over here to call on them instead. As a result of that, now God looks and He looks at an entire world where it was His own family that is supposed to be influencing the rest of the world, but what He sees is His own family has gotten corrupt. And now everybody's doing this. And, and, and by the way, God just He makes it clear throughout Scripture when God's own people cease to have any influence over the rest of the world, God pulls the plug. That's what He did with the situation in Noah, and then He makes clear that's the way it's going to be in the end. Even matter of fact, Jesus makes it clear, and we've talked about this, where he says, where the carrion is, there the vultures will gather. The context of that is from Matthew 24, 25, when he speaks about a dead church that is full of false Christs and false teachers. And the whole point is quite simple. When the body's dead, that which feasts on death is going to gather. It's going to congregate. And when, again, God's people cease to have any influence over the world, that's around them, God pulls the plug. He says, there's no reason they even have this anymore. Now understand, and it's really important for us to gather, that the reason why God's people are ineffective are not because evil is bigger or darker or has greater momentum. It, I mean, nowhere in Scripture, or for that matter, in physics, is, is darkness the, the overcomer of light, but rather darkness is the absence of it. That's the point of it. And if we recognize that, I want you to kind of get the idea in this, that what happens is that God's people are the ones that are letting the world in their lives. This isn't about us looking and being overcome by the world. It's about us letting the world in us. That's the problem. And, but God, we read, finds fit, that there's one man who finds favor in the midst of all of that, and that man's name is Noah, or Rest. And we read according to the New Testament that this guy was a preacher of righteousness. That's what the guy was doing. And he calls him to do the most bizarre thing again. He calls him to build a boat to tell the rest of the world that water's going to fall from the sky when it had never done so before this point. And that is weird, let's be honest. It's just frankly weird. I mean, if we were to say dirt was going to fall from the sky and we need to build a, a giant flower pot, again, that would be weird. And, and, and the whole point of all of this is, is that just because God calls you to do something weird, if He really does call you to do it, doesn't mean that it's not God calling you. It may very well be that in the uniqueness of that, it's going to draw attention enough so that people can actually say, hey, what is this whole thing about? Now, in the end of it all, God does pour forth this judgment, and the rest of the world is wiped out except for this man and everyone that is in the ark, and we have our first rescue vehicle. And as we have this rescue vehicle, this rescue vehicle lands. Now it's been over a year that they've been you know, floating on water. And now this is your whole new world. This is a brand new place. We don't even know what in the world. We don't know. I mean, how would you know where you are? If you've ever fallen asleep on a bus, 
you wake up or on a train, one of the first things is you try to figure out where in the world am I and how do I sort of, how do I interface with the new world that's around me? What would it be like when the entire world is brand new? I mean, you're going to crack open this giant boat and everything is different. Geography is different. Topography is different. The weather patterns are different. How do I know that? That's the last verses of chapter 8. Because we have our first altar as he walks out of this thing. And we read, as God talks about not punishing the world through this anymore, verse, look at the last chapter, verse 21, as it gets us into our text. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of his heart is evil from his youth. I will never destroy everything this way that I've done it. Now, while earth remains, and then he says seed time, harvest, cold, heat, winter, summer, all of those terms are uniquely firstly mentioned right here. And I find that interesting. That now all of a sudden, God starts laying out something. Now, we already told us that there would be seasons. We don't know what that's like, but let's be honest. No matter where you come from, seasons look a little bit different. Coming from the area of California, the seasons meant that it drops two degrees Celsius between one side and the other. That it may rain a little bit more, but to be honest, where we were, it was foggy most of the time anyways. So it's kind of like, oh, it must be summer. It's foggy all the time now. And not just foggy part of the time, you know. We could call the sunset season, that's four weeks where you kind of go, okay, the fog breaks long enough for us to be able to see the sunset over it. And, and I mean, so you get the kind of, but I mean, the, there's a radical difference between that and seasons in London now, isn't it? Because seasons in London, I mean, basically, first of all, the difference between 20 hours of sunlight and four, I mean, that's going to tell you there's some kind of difference. And you don't have to know, if, I mean, you could be, if you were like, out, if you woke up out of a coma and you wanted to know what season it was, you could probably figure that out here pretty quickly. Now, where we came from, it would might take you a little bit longer. Uh, and, and the whole point of that is, though God says it, he says, well, now, now there are going to be times when it's seed time, and there are going to be times when it's harvest time. It may have been harvest time all the time before that point, but that's different now. I mean, there may have been time when it was warm, and there were times when it was cold, but it appears as if that's actually very distinctly now. That's your new world now. The new world's going to be full of some pretty brash contrasts that you may not have seen before. And in all of that, Noah built his first altar, our first altar in Scripture, I mean, he opens up this big boat, and it's like, where in the world am I? And the funniest part about it is, according to Scripture, he's on a mountain. I mean, that's just got to be a really funny thing to open up. And I mean, and the, you know, the door doesn't sort of stop at that 90 you would expect it, but it goes... And he kind of looks down, and he's like, whoa, we're up someplace. You know, we gotta, and, and he's got to look at all these animals, and he's thinking, now, how in the world am I going to get that kangaroo down this? You know, I mean, think about it. That's a pretty radical thought. But the beauty of it is, is we don't, God, there's so much that obviously could be, I mean, if like in a Hollywood film where they spend three hours in a, of a three hour and ten minute movie, if they try to make it biblical, they put ten minutes of what the Bible might be in three hours of kind of gesture. You know, you know how that works? I've watched a couple and I've gone, uh, is there anything related to the biblical account in this story? We're two hours into it. I don't have anything yet. And, and I realize there's a lot that God could have told us that he didn't. Like, how in the world did he get them all off the ark? How in the world did they wind up? How did the platypus wind up in the Galapagos? How did he wind up with, you know, wallabies somewhere and wombats somewhere in New Zealand? You know, I mean, how does that work? I, the cool thing is I don't have to know that because God's like, look it, if it was important, I would put it in the book. Here's the kind of catch-22 in it all. Is people say, that book's so big. We even as Christians look and go, yeah, that book's so big, but why didn't God put this in? And I mean, God's like, you're already intimidated by the size of this book. What do you want? You want me to give you information that's really demanding? Wow, so that's how the wallaby got to. I mean, is, is that really going to make a difference in your life? 
It's like, God's like, look at, I'm, I'm giving you this stuff that's important. And that's really key, because there are certain times where you kind of read through a verse and you think, I think I would have rather, I mean, it seems to me more pertinent, the wallaby getting to New Zealand or whatever, than this lineage. And then we got through a lineage and we went, whoa, there's so many ridiculously profound things in that text. Because God is hand-selecting things, and there's just no text that you, that's just superfluous. It isn't like I open up a text and go, wow, well. That just must have snuck by the editor. And you know. And then I look at this and I think, what do we have in this chapter? We have, I mean, if we were to title it, it would be like sort of somewhere under the rainbow. And there's, there's this idea that now God is, is now interfacing with man in a new world. Now, understand, and it's important to recognize, deliverance is different than removal. But yet Christianity often is viewed as if deliverance and removal are the same things. Let me explain. I'm going to give you my testimony. Okay, here's the way it works. See, I used to be radically bad. I'd kick nuns and I'd throw puppies and I would just set people on fire for fun. And that was just that's who I was. I was just mean and nasty. And who are you now? I just don't do that anymore. And because you know that's the way the world hears us. You know that, right? And because the world hears us that way, they don't want to come to this. Because what this says is, you can't sleep with your girlfriend anymore, you can't go ahead and do drugs, you can't go to, well, you can't be in the clubs all night, because you wouldn't even make it to church if it did start at noon. I mean, there's all this stuff that's happening, but it's like, that's all they get, because that's the way our testimony rolls. But it's like, deliverance, if I were to say, hey, you know what, Bjorn, I need you to deliver this. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, See, the, 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 this, the, you're all witness. All right, so uh, the general question should be, if he wasn't coveting whatever it was, um, should be to where? I mean, if there's one thing to say, I need, you, I need you to remove this. Well, that's another story because even my children, I think that's when they hear something, that's what they remove. It just means I'll just take it. I can throw it on the floor as long as it wasn't where it started. It's different. God, I cleaned up. I'm like, well, then let's, let's deliver this to its proper location. And, and that's different. Socks go in a sock drawer. Weird how that works. The floor is not the sock floor. And, and, and all of that to say that we look at Christianity as if somehow that's the way it is. You know, it's like, well, the Lord just removed. I was, I was, in, I was going to hell. I was, in, this was a terrible time. And I was, I was miserable. And I was only, and that's true. I mean, all of that was basically, that's what it took for you to cry out to him in the first place. And God doesn't have a problem throwing you to the mat because this is a submission hold. He knows what it's like to wrestle with you, and he knows what it's like to finally go, you're done. And for some people, that takes a lot more than others. But that's not one place you want to brag about your tolerance of pain. But in the end of it all, there's got to be a deliverance. There's got to be, what did you come to? He says he's delivered us out of the power of darkness into the sun he loves. That's the second, I mean, and, and again, think about the idea that God gave us this beautiful act of baptism is a physical way of demonstrating what happened to you spiritually and how ridiculous. If, if our testimonies were consistent, if our baptisms were consistent with our testimonies, we take them in the water, we drop them down, and we just leave them there until they died because there's no new life on the new side of that. It's like, ah, this is, this is who you were. No, you're not that anymore. You're not anything anymore. And, and I realize that somewhere on the other side of that is this new life, this new world, this new place where God says, now look it. I got you out of Egypt. 
I'm going to march you around till that part of Egypt that's, I mean, though I got you out of Egypt, I want to get Egypt out of you. And then as that dies, as that old man dies in there, I've got a new place for you over here. And he set us up for that here in this story. I mean, in the first story where God pronounces some form of judgment, and it's pandemic, it's worldwide judgment, he looks and he goes, now, there's another side to this. This isn't me just being the bad guy, bad cop, destroying everyone else, and you're okay. But it's like, but I mean, if that were the case, they would have died in the ark, and we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't be here reading this. Or if we were, we'd be in the boat now too. But he's like, now crack this thing open, there's a new world here. Well, what's the new world like? Well, I find it interesting that the first thing that happens in this new world is God interfacing with man. And I'll just take that so you don't feel like, uh uh-oh, while people are watching. Um, Consider this. That in this new world, now, okay, okay, so it started with, I I was hell-bound, I was guilty, as any human being is guilty, and that's just kind of a no-brainer. You don't have to be brilliant to figure out you're defective. Uh, Matter of fact, I think if you don't think you're defective, it shows two defects, that you're defective and you're too defective to figure out you're defective. But uh, in in all of that, consider the fact that you kind of go, okay, I need that. Okay, Lord, deliver me from this, and deliverance is the beautiful word in it. Deliver me from this, and the Lord's like, well, the point is, is that you've been running from me. You're trying to do this on your own, but what I want to deliver you to well, is me. You're delivered from darkness into the sun he loves. You get the idea that there's a him on the other side. He's the destination. Heaven's not the destination. Heaven's the product of it. He's the destination. And so I crack open this boat now, this, this, this beautiful rescue vehicle that I popped in because out of faith I trusted God when he told me to do something really weird in the first place, like build it. And, then, and it will be man who will build a cross for what it's worth. And then in all of that, then I, I crack open the door. And, and by the way, according to the last chapter, remember, Noah wouldn't even get out of the boat until God told him to. I mean, you know, we read, hey, it was dry. Remember that he checked it, it was dry. And he's like, okay, ground's dry. I'm just going to sit here in the boat. Because I get out of the boat. I've got a whole new world for you. And I know that that's a word for many of us. That God's like, look at it. Okay, you got that point. You got the point that you're saved. Now, let's start living a new life. One, to be honest, that other people should envy. I mean, they're still chasing after lame things. And they know they're lame things. They just don't have anything else, to be honest, to compare it to. And they're sold that this will bring them happiness. And we won't even show them joy. That transcends and isn't circumstantial. And so here it is, and God starts it, and he goes, now that this boat's open, now here's my call. And notice that the first thing that God does is he gives him a bunch of commandments. No, no, actually, that's not it at all. And by the way, I am not in any way, it ends with, with words like religion or preach or those kind of things, because to be honest, if we actually knew what those words meant, we'd actually be saying, yes, yes, I am religious. And if the word really means devoted, I really hope you're radically religious. And when someone says, oh, don't go, you know, I'm not going to preach at you. Look at, I am going to preach at you. Because all preach means, Caruso means, is to share information, to sway your opinion. Every human being preaches. The moment they tell you not to preach, they're preaching at you not to preach. Figure that one out. Now, back to our point on all this. What God does to start this whole thing was the very thing he did before, which is he blesses them. Now, before we even go any farther in this, let me ask you. If I were to say, if God really, really blessed you, what would that look like? Your answer at that moment will actually, I mean, if you're honest, or my answer if we were honest, will truly show us how horribly rotten and selfish we really are or not. 
I mean, if, I mean, the word blessed, by the way, isn't a fancy word, and it isn't exclusive to, to the Scriptures. I mean, to, be, to be honest, I mean, in the Greek, when we get to the New Testament, the word will be makaros. And, the, and the, people will say it translates happy. I don't like that term, to be honest, because there's the brute word for that comes out of a word that means luck. But coming from California, we do have a word that I think works quite well, and the word is stoked. You know, and you say, like, how are you doing? And you're like, I'm stoked. And, and, and I mean, you know, anyways, and, and, but the idea here is that God is stoking people. But what's interesting is what God views really blesses people and not. Because the first time that God blessed someone or something, by the way, and follow me up to this point, go back to chapter 1. It should be easy to find. That's eight chapters before this one to verse 22. This was, by the way, before man. He blessed animals. Do you know what he said to those animals? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters. Multiply on the earth. Isn't that what he said to the birds as well? Look at verse 28. Now he speaks to man. Here's our first interaction between God and man. What's God's first interaction with God and man? And he's blessing them. And what is he blessing them with? Be fruitful, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over all the birds, the fish, the birds, and so forth. Huh. I find that interesting. Now, in chapter 5, verse 2, it'll tell us that he blessed them, male and female, and he called them mankind. And when he did, he blessed them, he called them to be fruitful. Matter of fact, how do I know that? That's the way God works. Go to chapter 17 for a moment. In chapter 17, there's a situation, and the situation is a guy named Ishmael. We kind of know him to be kind of a bit of a troublemaker. And if God actually promises that, he says he'll be a wild man. So I just want to warn you. Now, when God tells you that he's going to, you know, there'll be someone that's a wild man, you might want to take note of that, especially if they move in next door or whatever. And in this, by the way, the, the issue was, well, what's going to happen to him now that he's leaving the presence of this family and his company at the point? It's interesting. What God says is, I have blessed him, speaking of Ishmael, and it says, and I will make him fruitful. Well, I find that interesting. Go to chapter 24 for a moment, verse 60. Ladies, you get to jump in on this one. And, and, and I almost kind of see this for a moment like you're at a baby shower. You know, and they kind of throw out these cute little accents and so forth. And it just says this in chapter 24, the ladies are blessing Rebecca, verse 60. It says that they blessed Rebecca. And what was their blessing? May you be the mother of thousands of ten thousands. Now, I would hope that doesn't mean may you give birth to thousands of ten thousands. That doesn't sound like a blessing to anyone as far as I can see. And then I started thinking, hmm, there seems to be a pretty weird consistency. How about a man that's blessed? My first thought is I go to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk and see, you know, walk in the path and stand in the seat of the sword, you know, sit in the seat of the scornful. And, you know, and it's like, okay, there's those that are mocking and so forth. And, of course, it says, but instead he meditates day and night on the commandments. That's what he tells us. And what does he become like? A tree planted by rivers of water who bears forth fruit in due season. And I realized something. So see if this makes sense to you, because it does to me, and it's just whether or not you are weird or I am, or we're both weird. I mean, and this may not prove either of those, but just the same. If God created us to have a purpose, to have meaning, for which... Man, ever since, will either accept God's purpose in his life 
or will then spend the rest of his life in hot and flagrant pursuit of the other. He will posthumize and philosophize. He will create institutions, societies where what gives you purpose is your job. Something that, and it becomes then some kind of core part of our identity, but it's almost like hungering for something that you've never tasted. Does that make any sense? It's like I have a taste for something and I don't even know what it is. It's like I just have a feeling if I smell it being made, I'll go, that's it. And inside I have this appetite and it craves for some form of purpose. Well, hear me out. And I'm going to say something potentially dangerous, but again, don't believe anything I say. Search the scriptures and let the Bible have the final say. There is no appetite that God has given you that is sinful in the appetite. But with every appetite, there is a specific menu. Sin is when you order off the menu. It's just that simple. The desire for sex is something God gave, but he has a specific menu for it. The desire for companionship, he has. He created. In other words, hear me out, the appetite is not the sin. It's what you actually order, and when you order is the issue. God says, look at this is what I've given you as an appetite. The crazy thing is, is if we're not careful, we as a fellowship or as a church can condemn the appetite instead of the menu or the off the menu or items, if that makes sense. It's like, look, I don't blame you for wanting this. I don't blame you for wanting companionship. God created you that way. But he wants to fulfill that. And I don't blame you for wanting to find purpose and to find yourself in a radical, fundamental universal identity crisis until you think you find out who in the world you are. How do I interface with this world and what part do I play in it? And here's the best part. If you go to the public school system, you will be taught you have no purpose. You are a coincidental set of a bunch of chances that basically miraculously became you through a bunch of radical different, you know, different sort of uh, gene splitting and coagulating and congregating and coalescing and some really radical things that somehow were really just this glorious serendipity of accidents. And somehow in it, now you're breathing tissue. The good thing is we didn't kill you beforehand, and there you are, but you're still more than we want on the planet, and you're one of them. But in all of that, somehow in it, you're going to die, and, and the good news is, is you'll erode into a much smaller set of mass and maybe someday we can use you for fossil fuel. And, I mean, that's kind of where we get in this. And then we wonder why people kill other people without any form of regard. It's like, look, it, if I have no purpose on the planet, then why would I think you do? And if you're not important to anyone, well, then why not rape you? And I'm not, you know, understand, I'm not endorsing that mindset. I'm just saying that that just seems congruent with the idea that you started off as an accident in the first place with no purpose. And yet here, God says, I have a plan, I have a plan for you. I, have, I created you with a specific purpose, and that purpose is that you would bear fruit. Jesus will tell us the same thing if you remember in John 15. I've appointed you that you would bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain. You're tired of bearing fruit that seems like it goes rotten the next day? God says, look at actually, but there's one requirement for you to bear that kind of fruit. According to John 15, beloved, those of you who are Bible students, what does it really take to bear fruit in Christ's name? What do you have to do? Yeah, abide in Him. Now, it's interesting because what part of that takes fantastic strength, brilliance, discipline? He's like, hey, could you just stay with me? 
Can we just stay together? If we stay, you'll bear fruit. That's what I'm asking. Now, how am I going to stay? Well, he goes, look it. I want you to keep my commands. Well, what are the commandments? Well, it's quite simple. I want you to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I want you to love everyone else like you would yourself. Anyways, if you do that, everything else, you'll find everything else sort of falls right into place. And you're like, well, and, and, and I've learned, I think it was um, Mark Twain who said, it isn't the things about the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the things I do that do. And it's like, to be honest, there's no part of your flesh that's going to stand up and applaud. That is, as a matter of fact, what you're actually asking is the very thing Jesus required when he said, unless you're willing to take up your cross and follow me daily, don't even call yourself my disciple. And what I really want in all of this is I want surrender. Now, back in our text, we got to this point, and again, we're in verse 1, but don't worry, it picks up. God bless Noah. Now, how does he bless him and his sons? He says, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And I think, well, it's, it's interesting that the whole point of this is that God does want to bless. It's interesting, the next time he blesses someone is going to be Abraham in chapter 12. And remember how he blesses him? He says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. That sounds like fruitfulness. What do you think? But yet, when I think about God blessing me, is that where my mind goes? I've got to be honest to tell you, it really doesn't, because I've been so conditioned by this world. I think what would really bless me would be a new blah, blah, blah. Would be a better blah, blah, blah. Would be a, a thing, stuff, and it. And God says, but you know what? You're never going to be happy with all that, because to be honest, to really bless you, I want to make you fruitful. I ordained you for this purpose, unless you really are. Now, what he's going to show us is what fruitfulness kind of bears forth on one side or another, because the Bible says, don't be deceived. And by the way, I genuinely believe there's one person better at deceiving you than Satan. Because according to Jeremiah, he would tell you the one person that most equipped to deceive you is, is you. And by the way, the same for me and me. This is don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What you sow, you reap. I mean, you plant apple seeds, it's not going to produce a peach tree. That's, that would just be strange. And it's obvious. And he says, look, it, there's only two things to sow to. I mean, you're going to either plant flesh seeds or spirit seeds, so to speak. And I'm not going to get really weird about some kind of, that could go any kind of weird place. But the point is, you're going to, you're going to plant something in that heart of yours, and it's going to bear forth fruit. That's just the simple truth of it. And it's interesting, because that's exactly what he's going to do now. It's, there is something interesting, though, between this new world and the world they had before, back with Adam. And that was that God said, be fruitful, fill the earth, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And it's interesting because God gave them authority. And so what they, I mean, if they had this call for fruitfulness in this blessing, but also authority over. But it's interesting here they have this issue of fruitfulness, but they don't have that authority anymore. Instead, it's been replaced by fear and dread. Have you noticed that? It says, now these animals are going to fear you, they're going to dread you, but you don't have authority like you used to. Now, people will go, well, well so first of all, let's play it out easy. You walk through a field and there's a deer, and the deer looks at you and goes, oh, and it takes off. And you go, that's a sign of this. That's what God told us, that there'll be fear. But you're like, well, what about the rhinoceros? When I go walk up to the rhinoceros, it doesn't tend to walk away like that. But let me ask you something. Is everything that's fearful flee? Does everything that's fearful flee? No, as a matter of fact, a lot of people that I know that fight, fight out of fear, and that's, that's their response. And it's like, well, wait a minute. God says, I put fear and dread in those animals, but that doesn't mean that they're going to flee from you. They're just going to act out of fear. And that may mean a rhinoceros may charge you because that's what it does out of fear, or a bull may charge you. Because it, but the bottom line is, he goes, you don't have the authority you used to have before that. You could have said, don't charge me. And it would go, okay, we're done. I mean, I'm not saying it was, it was a you know, Dr. Doolittle thing. I'm just saying that there was some kind of authority in that. I mean, I wish we had that, especially anytime I'm near mosquitoes. Because 
for me, it's like that is clearly, if there was one of the few things, I mean, maybe neckties and mosquitoes that I would want to sort of hit um, Adam for, I, I won't. <laughs> God's delivered me from that lifestyle of hitting things. Um, but if it were the case, um, it would probably be mosquitoes, neckties, and maybe coffee, certainly country music. But uh, in all of that, um, I would say, and, and I'm not telling you that, that that's evil because I dislike it, but, but when it comes to something like mosquitoes, have you ever done this? Maybe you've kind of gone there and you've gotten, even if you're not necessarily charismatic, you kind of get that role anyways. I remember like playing once we were doing this sort of outside thing and I was playing guitar and these, these, these just nasty things were just like, I just know at this point they look at my face and go, buffet line, and they're calling their friends. You're going to love this. Come on over. Let's just, just suck his blood till he dies. And, and I'm just, and I'm like, just, I'm thinking to my heart, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Jesus Christ, I just command. And guys, like, I don't have that commandment anymore. I don't have that authority anymore. I'd love to. I just command right now all of you mosquitoes to suck each other's blood till you die or something, you know? <laughs> but in this it says, notice again in verse 2, it's the fear of you, now and the dread shall be on the earth instead. Nukra is the word for fear, and then the wachat for being crushed, broken, or dismayed, the word for dread. Um, it's interesting because we'll certainly see those words appear in some very interesting ways as we get through Scripture. And he sets that up. Fear and dread is going to be part of all of this. By the way, as he sets it up, when's the next, if you were to think, when's the next big deliverance God's going to work? I mean, those of you familiar with Scripture. It's going to be, yeah, when he births the nation and delivers them out of Egypt. It's interesting. Do you remember why Pharaoh enslaved them in the first place? He enslaved them because he had a sense of dread over those people because they were multiplying. Those darn people, they're like rabbits. And, and you look at this and he goes, and, and then he goes, you know what? And if, if they keep doing this, they're going to join the other side and we're going to be, we're going to be toast. And I'll just obviously lose paraphrase again. Search the scriptures on it. That's Exodus chapters 1, 2, and 3. Here, there's this issue of the dread again and again. When he plays that dread card again, you're going to see that God's going to work deliverance out of it. I've given them in your hand everything that moves. And then, by the way, he does play this out. And for some of us, this is a glorious verse, verse 3. This is every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all these things. By the way, obviously, this is going to be before kosher laws, for instance. So at this point, you could eat anything that actually moved. Um, that's kind of an exciting thing. Of course, what that means is that before this point, nobody was a carnivore. And, of course, that means that some people want to play. You know, if you want to, and, and, by the way, I do challenge you to read Romans chapter 14 in regards to how to treat each other if you kind of have those convictions. Praise the Lord. The idea is one side will be quick to condemn. The other side will be quick to be contemptuous. And God says, look, at either position is not sinful, but if you treat each other that way, that's where your sin plays in. So there you go. On the other side of it, I do praise God for carnivorism because I'm the kind of person, if I was any more a carnivore, my teeth would be pointed. The people go, well, ha, 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 it's here. And I'm like, well, how do you know that back in the, in the garden that the fruit didn't taste like Thai food or like a good steak? We don't know that. I mean, you could have been into something. You're like, ooh, this is like lamb chops. We just wouldn't have known they were lamb chops back then. Who knows? But back then, who cares? I mean, the bottom line is here, he says you can do that. But there is something really fundamental in all of this. And that is how you're going to deal with this issue of life and death. Because he says, not all flesh will be there with its life. He says, that's the blood. He goes, look at life blood is something I'm going to demand. So you need to, when it comes to humans, and by the way, he makes really clear there's a big difference between people and everything else. And he makes that really clear. And I think one of the reasons is he doesn't want us eating each other. I mean, he just said, anything that moves, you can eat. And then, you know, I kind of look around, I'm like, you know, so, so, you know can you imagine that? And then Noah kind of looks around and goes, you know, I, I, I'm going to eat that kid because he's been driving me crazy anyways, you know. <laughs> you know? And that's, that's one way to handle it. The guy goes, well, wait a minute, let's just make this really clear. 
you need to recognize something that the world in 2011 isn't going to recognize, and that is that I've put a very radical difference in my viewpoint of people than I do every other living thing. And ironic, it's the opposite, I think, with a lot of people here. Uh, and the idea is, look, it, I'm going to die for humankind to reconcile them to me. But I'm not, I hope you don't mind me telling you the truth on this, but it's that I'm not going to die for puppies. I mean, the bottom line is, is that they're kind of, there's something you get here, and I hope that doesn't burst your bubble. And if it does, there's no Easter Bunny. There you go. So uh, I, says, I might as well just get it all out while we can. Um, the, the point made that there is a radical difference. Now, let me tell you how that works, by the way, on the opposite in San Diego. In San Diego, a high school girl was arrested. And she was arrested for cruelty to animals because she had successfully performed an abortion on a rat. And it was interesting. Though she had successfully performed that, they said that that was cruelty to the rat. Her response, of course, was, well, then how can you do that to a human being and call it legal? And their response, of course, was, sit down, shut up, you're going to jail. And she was like 15. Do you know that it's against the law on the East Coast to transport pregnant lobster? It's cruel to the lobster. And let's just bring it home here to the UK. Here's how it works in the UK. If you found a person dead on the street, you don't have to do anything with them. You, you, you can actually kick that dead body, and there's no recourse necessarily unless the family gets really upset with you about it. However, on the south coast of the UK, one thing that I wanted to go to for years when I learned about it, a thing called codger coddling. Has anyone heard of this? Okay, once a year, what happened is, is there's lifeguard stations down in the south coast. reason is lots of water, people drown there. We need people to watch to make sure that doesn't happen. That's pretty brilliant. Now, while all that happens, lo and behold, budget cuts, these guys are not getting the funding that they need. So what do we do to raise money? So they invented this game. Now, maybe this just shows how twisted I am compared to you, but follow me on it. These guys stand on these little boxes just about the size of their feet and no bigger. And there's ten per side, basically spaced like bowling pins. And they take this 25 to 50-pound dead eel, codger eel, I mean, this thing is basically about a meter. And they take this thing, and what they do is they both, from one side to the other, they swing this thing around and throw it at each other to try to knock each other off. And the last group standing wins. And I thought, oh, I'm going to see that. That just sounds like fun. How can I play? You know, and I'm like, how did you train for that? You know, here, quick, hit me with a tire. Hit me with a fish, you know. Um, but what happened, I kid, I kid you not, and they were raising, and this was, as strange as it was, it raised the kind of money that was necessary to keep these watch stations functioning. But then an animal rights group actually, actually complained, and they complained because they said that it was, and I kid you not, quote verbatim, irreverent to the dead eel. We, that's really, you're really treating that dead eel with irreverence. It's dead. It's an eel. Nonetheless, I don't want to pick on that. The whole point of it is, is that what God makes clear in the text is completely flipped around in the unsaved world that looks and says, hey, look at, why don't you guys all, and what's really interesting is the people that say we're overpopulated, well, they don't kill themselves. 
I mean, you'd think there's a quick solution to, you know, it's one less. I mean, but they're like, look, you know, there's too many people on the planet. Why don't all y'all kill yourself and I'll count how many of you are dead when we're done. And I'm thinking, wow, you're really not really, well, anyways, you get the idea. But the reason is if we all died, we could get more woodchucks. They would be happy. And, and clearly all of the squirrels would join hands and sing together. And it would be a really utopic world without us on it. Well, you can move. That's okay. And, and, and I just, I kind of look at that and God says, but let me tell you, according to Scripture, and you need to recognize this, if you are going to actually say you love me and you follow me, I need you to know there's one thing that is most important on the planet, and it is human beings. It will always be human beings, because I am obsessively, irreversibly, imperviously in love with these people that I made to be with me as my companions, and I'm going to die for them to set them free from their own guilt and sin and shame, and if that's going to be the case, get it through your head. You can eat anything else at this point, but get this through your head. People are important. And I'm going to give an account for every blood that is spilled. After all, the first time, it only took one generation from Adam before blood was spilled. And it was a guy, and what was his name? Cain, who killed his brother. Because he's like, I'm holding you accountable. Look, at it's blood for blood. And that's the whole point of this. It's blood for blood. And then I go, wow, my my mind immediately goes to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 14, where it says, Inasmuch as these children partook in flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who has the power over death. That is Satan. In other words, Jesus says, if blood is required for bloodshed, then I'm going to have to shed. I'm going to have to have blood to shed to pay for this bloodshed. And it's interesting, as God starts to lay this out, we don't have to get far. We'll get to the book of Leviticus, and all of a sudden God will start saying, look it, if blood is shed, the only way to take this and not have the individual who shed the blood, and we're not talking about manslaughter or accidental death, we're talking about intentional, is to take an innocent, completely innocent thing that has blood and let it shed its blood in your place. It says, I am setting you up for something. You're aware of that, right? Now, this is in no way God actually telling us to be cruel to animals. As a matter of fact, he tells us that the, actually that those who are wise and who are godly care after their own animals. He tells us that in the book of Proverbs. But the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel is what he tells us. But he says, look, it, it's blood for blood. And that's the point of it. And that's why, according to Hebrews 2, it tells us because this is a blood issue, God had to come down and have blood to shed. That's the point of it. And I look at them and I start thinking, okay, well, wait a minute. God had just said, I want you to be fruitful. And remember, there were two different groups of people. There were those that were full of bloodshed and violence, and then there were those that called on his name. And God looks at Noah and he says, now which one are you going to be, boy? Because if you're going to follow me, I'm going to make you fruitful, and I'm going to bless you in that. That's the fruit on this side. What's the fruit on this side? It's about death. That's what it's about. You're going to bear fruit, forth fruit. And I start thinking, that's exactly what Romans tells me in regards to walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh. It's just to be carnally minded is death. That's what it bears forth is that fruit. Now, interesting, he moves from that and he just says, again, verse 7, as for you, be fruitful, multiply. And it says, as for you, since you know that the world's going to bear forth the fruit of death, I want you to bear forth greater fruit than that. If the world's there trying to destroy, I want you building up. So I want you to multiply on it. And then God says in verse 8, I, I, look, and I want to establish this covenant. And the word establish for what it's worth, it's kum, it means to rise or accomplish. And this, of course, and by the way, if you know it, Noah's the first guy to ever get a covenant from God. I think that's a pretty radical thing. And I do find it interesting, when God does a covenant, 
He tends to give us something that's symbolic of it. Did you notice that? And I think it's a really cool study, if you're ever a Bible student kind of person, to go and look at every covenant in Scripture and see how God puts a symbol next to it and how that symbol is supposed to pertain. Um, for instance, in this one, here's the, here's, here's, okay, look at, here's the deal. I'm never going to destroy the world again with water that we're aware of. And here's the sign. Here's the, and the word for what it's worth literally is sort of the idea of a banner. And here's the banner or the token for this is that I'm going to set this rainbow in the cloud so you see it and you go, oh yeah, I remember this. But here's the interesting thing. This is what scripture told me before this point. Is that there was, when God created, he split water from water. And when he split water from water, he used the bottom water to create earth. That's what he told us. But the top part he used to make heaven. Or at least it says that this heaven actually split the, the waters. It was somewhere in between this. It was a firmament, as he told us, or an expanse in between that water and another water. So there was water above that, or if you might even dare say, there was water above the heaven, this particular expanse that God created. Now, the reason I say that is that expanse is somewhere between earth and then this other place. And there was water there. Now, we tend, we tend to say, well, this is the first rainbow in Scripture. Well, it's the first time God mentions the word rainbow. But here's my question to you. If water actually encased the world on the outside of it as well, in between this expanse, there was the world, some expanse, and then another area of water. And then the sun was behind that. Could it have been your entire sky was a rainbow? Either God created this whole format of light refraction, hydro-water refraction, at this particular season or state in life, or could it have been just a reminder that this is what the world was like way back when, when Adam walked with the Lord? And I start to think, wow, that's an interesting thought. That this isn't that God's like, well, I'm going to come up with this whole new doozy, and he reaches down in his bag of tricks and he goes, a rainbow, let's stick that in the cloud. That's a cool idea. Now you get this season, whoa, it's colorful. Could it have been that it's like, well, what I'm going to give you is what it looked like Every sunset we had when we walked hand in hand before this point. And now all of a sudden, I want you to realize that when you see these moments when the clouds come and it seems heavy, could you be reminded that sometimes those moments are actually going to just drive you to a deeper intimacy with me? Back where we were. And I've got to be honest to tell you, that makes an awful lot of sense to me in regards to my own life. Those moments when these kind of crazy moments appear. And sometimes you can see them coming. I mean, sometimes you just get blindsided. But sometimes you actually the cloud kind of appears and you're like, uh-oh. And then God says, even in the, and again, I'm not trying to over-metaphorize, allegorize this, but the idea is that sometimes in the moment of the Lord's like, look at it. This is going to make us closer. You're aware of that, right? And you're like, but I don't like this discord and this disarray and this discomfort and I don't like these conflicts and I don't, I mean, this stuff, I don't like this. And God goes, yeah, but I'm going to use this. Do you remember when we were tight, when we were close, and at the moment, you're kind of drifting, and this is what I'm going to use to bring you back. But what's interesting is throughout Scripture, every time God shows pandemic response from this point on, the first thing you're going to see is God on the throne. And by the way, it's interesting because you know what surrounds the throne? Well, according to the book of Revelation, it's a rainbow. And I just think that's kind of interesting. That even when John, if you think about it, God, I mean, God pulls, if you think of God pulls Ezekiel up, and Ezekiel's like, well, this is the strangest thing I've ever seen. And God says, well, yeah, and now I'm going to show you a little bit of judgment, but you need to recognize Isaiah, Isaiah's kind of pulled up, and what does he see? He sees the one who sits on the throne, and the train of his world fills the temple. And God's, in other words, he's saying, I'm large and I'm in charge, because the world's about to get chaotic, but you need to be reminded that I'm on the throne. 
Because the world around you is going to get chaotic, but you need to have that image. I want that image burned into your eyes that I'm on the throne when the rest of your world looks like it's chaotic. I'm still on the throne. John is pulled up. He sees someone who sits on the throne. The rainbow surrounds the throne. And God says, now let me show you how crazy the world's going to get. But you need to get that image in your head. I'm on the throne even in the middle of all this stuff. And I look at this and God says, look at this rainbow. is just going to remind you I'm still in control. There's still a heaven out there and I'm still in control even when these things happen. And I know when to say stop on this thing. I will never use a sledgehammer to move you when a feather will work. And I am not going to do it this way again. I've got another plan. So I'm going to establish my covenant. You need to recognize that. And I want you to recognize every time you look up and see that, I want you to be reminded, I'm not going to, this is, there's an end to this. This will come to pass. And my prayer for you, and so you know, this will be a cool little term we can use here, is, you know, when you're going to look at it, I'm going through this really hard time, I'm like, Lord, could you just show us the rainbow in it? That thing that reminds us that it's only going to be there as long as it needs to be, and then it'll come to pass. But on the other, God's still in control on the whole bit of it. And I realize, and then he's like, okay, but for you, here's the deal. For you, the issue is going to be this sign. But for me, on the other hand, well, this is the way that I want it to be. And, and, and then all of a sudden I get to this strange little situation at the end of this thing to close this thing down. And all of a sudden you kind of go, Noah, what in the world were you thinking? No, he, he becomes a farmer. He plants a vineyard. And then he makes wine. And then the wine has to ferment. I mean, that's, that, this whole thing takes a lot of time. God put it in a sentence, but yet you realize. See, I mean, even the fact that it becomes wine, I mean, you know that Noah lived in the old world and there, there, was, there had to be wine, although we had kind of have our first mention here in that. Uh, you know that now, I mean, because what wine is, if you think about it, is decay. It's fermentation. That means it's death. There's death in the thing that's causing it in the first place. And, and so somewhere down the line, Noah's gotten a little comfortable in this new land. He's got this kind of, and, and he, again, everyone's supposed to be fruitful, and instead he's kind of picking the fruit, letting it die, and then living off of it. And, and all of a sudden now, what happens if we result of this. It's interesting is what happens is the guy gets drunk and he gets naked. And it tells us, by the way, that he doesn't. It isn't that he woke up from his sleep. Notice the text that will say he woke up from his wine. I find that interesting. It's like, and finally, when the wine had done what it was supposed to do, Noah woke up and he went, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. It doesn't say that he felt bad about what he'd done. It's interesting because it's also interesting. Did you notice that the first child in the new world that is mentioned is this guy Canaan? Did you notice that? I find that interesting. I mean, it isn't like God mentioned a whole bunch of people in this chapter. He says, of all of these people, it's like, you know, there's Noah, he's got his three sons and their wives, but the first baby born in the new land is a guy named Canaan, which, by the way, comes from the root word that is Cain. I think it's a little strange, don't you? I mean, wouldn't you want to, I don't know, pick somebody with a little nicer name than that? The guy, it's kind of a bad, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like, okay, Germany's being rebuilt and you named your kid Hitler. There's something wrong with that. And I kind of look at this and I start to think, why Cain? There's these three sons. And then I start to go, well, wait a minute. This is, I mean, obviously it's clearly prophetic. But I'd like you to consider this. Somebody's sinning and they're shaming. They're in shame. In their tent, by themselves. It's a secret thing. It's just, I mean, we don't even read, I don't even know where his wife is at this point, whether she's still alive or not, or what the case is. All we just know at this point, he's in the tent. And as it's the case, this boy walks in, and he goes, Oh, Dad, whoa. And he comes back, and he's like, Guys, Dad's drunk and naked. And they look at him and go, What are you thinking? 
This is like a, because, I mean, even the words themselves, and, and I, I wish I could develop it, but for the purpose of it, the words, they kind of speak about this idea, first of all, to look on is the idea, to gaze and to actually enjoy. On the other side of it is that the word for speak for what it's worth is to actually boldly stand on and explain and even praise is used. This word is often described in, or translated praise. And this is the word you kind of get, you guys. And I wonder if, and again, please understand, this is just my wondering. This isn't doctrine I'm teaching around this point. It's like, wonder if, it's as if this guy, Ham, kind of looks and he goes, whoa, maybe it's all right to do this again. Check it out. Dad's wasted in the tent. You guys, he's naked. Dad's naked. You should go check it out. Check it out. And I wonder if there's that part of, you know, and wouldn't it be, I mean, think about it, would it be, hear me, hear me, hear me on this. So part of you that goes, now that I'm saved, and then you see some Christian and they do something, and you know somehow you really shouldn't do it, or you kind of know that in your spirit, you kind of know that's not kind of cool, but there's that little part of ham in you, you know, that little ham in you that, that kind of goes and goes, ooh, well, if they do that, maybe I can do it too. You know, okay, okay he's kind of casing the girls, man. Well, maybe I won't do it like it's obvious, but maybe that's okay. Maybe, maybe we can, you know, do it. Okay, they have a five kegger at their church. We'll just do like a two kegger. That'll be okay. It's not as bad. And, you know, and all of it is sort of like, you realize that the kind of hems kind of laying this whole thing out. Like maybe we could take a little of that old world with us. And those other two guys are like, what are you doing? I'm not even going to look upon this. They take a coat. And, and, and this would be kind of a maneuver. Think about it. I mean, we have to put it on our shoulders, and we're going to walk back. Do you see feet yet? Do you see feet yet? You know? Let's hope. And then walk away. Look at, I am not going to partake in this at all. I'm, I'm not going to be a part of that. Now, look at, if there's a point, in, and I'll say it quickly, and then we'll get right to the end of this. <coughs> Drinking. Is it a sin? I mean, well, you know, let's say, I had someone tell me yesterday, well, look at I smoke pot, but it's natural because like it grows out of the ground. I'm like, hey, you know what? Hemlock grows out of the ground. Why don't you make a salad out of it? And then he's like, what's hemlock? I'm like, it's poisonous. He's like, where can I get it? I'm like, it'll kill you. Oh, well, maybe I probably don't want it. But it's natural, bro. Stinging nettles are natural. Why don't you grow a bunch of them and then roll around in them naked? It's natural, bro. Why you know what? People have hemp clothing. Why don't you have like poison oak clothing? It's pretty cool, you know? It's like it's its its own line. You could call it like itchy scratchy or something, you know? Make it sound like it's kind of Asian or something. But I mean, in all of it, the whole point of it is, is that somewhere down the line, but here's let me just say this. I'm not gonna condemn you for one side of that or the other. Drunkenness is clearly a sin. The question is, how close do you want to get to something that you know is a sin if you take it any farther? That's really the point. And again, I don't want to be a legalist. What a legalist is is when I make my convictions law. But I want to say this that as far as me and my house is concerned, and as far as anybody that will ever be in leadership at this church, they sign a pact that that is not what they're going to do. And the reason's quite simple, because I just don't want to trip you up. I don't want them to be the naked dad in the tent for you to go, oh, look at dad's naked, let's go party. Because I'm not going to allow that. Now again, I'm not going to condemn you on it, but if anyone ever gets to the point of a leadership role here, that's just not going to play. And the reason is, I want to make sure that if a person is being delivered out of alcoholism, I can send them to your house. 
so that they know and they don't have to go and get tripped up by the wine that's sitting on the table or whatever the case. And again, I'm not here to contend me with that. The whole point of all of this is, is that somewhere in all of this, there's two sides still. There's something strange as it is. Even in the new world, there's still two sides, two kingdoms in conflict. And then there's this one side that really wants to take sin and run with it. And there's another side that says, we're going to cover this up and we're not going to let this get any farther. What side are you going to play on that? In the end of it all, and what's interesting is it's the only recorded speech that Noah gives in all of Scripture, and it starts with the word cursed. Well, that's his, I mean, I'm sure that Noah said a lot of awesome things. This is what we get. And he says, cursed be Canaan. You go, Canaan? It wasn't even Canaan. It was him. Canaan is one of his sons. But God knows, and I find it interesting. And I think there's a play on this, if you'll pardon me for thinking this. And the idea is that you're just, you're just looking a lot like Cain right now. You're going right back to that whole family that was way back then. But there is a specific Canaan. And of course, he will be the father of the people in Canaan. In Canaan, which, by the way, were the people that were dispossessed when Israel took the land and became... And it was their new world led under the, the leadership of Joshua. And I think it's just so beautiful how God plays it out. But he says, now, on the other hand, let me tell you about these other two guys. And he doesn't even say, blessed be Shem, verse 26. Let's wrap this up. Notice he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. The person that should be blessed in this is God. God certainly wasn't blessed by your behavior, Ham, or for that matter, how much you act like Cain. And your son is a result of that. May he be a servant. And I find this interesting, because remember, the whole point before this was that Cain's family had gotten superiority and influence over God's people, over, over the family of Seth. And now he looks and he goes, man, may this guy be a servant instead of a leader. May he be a servant of servants, but blessed be the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And it's, again, the first child mentioned by name, and it's the opposite of what God wants here. And, that. and then he says, may God enlarge Yepheth. Now, the word Yepheth, for what it's worth, means expand. The word for enlarge is the word Fathah. And it's interesting because Yepheth and Fathah are the same base word. In other words, it's like going, may, I mean, if your name was like Biggie, it's like, may God make Biggie bigger, was the idea. And I was like, may expand him to the point. Now, how is Yepheth going to be expanded? May dwell in the tents of Shem. Somehow in this, it's like of these three kids, one person seems to rise to the front, and that's this kid Shem, which is really important because from Shem will come a person named Eber, and Eber will be the person who's the father of the Hebrews. And of course, ultimately, from that will be Abraham, and from Abraham, ultimately, will be David, and from David will ultimately be our Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And even here, he tells us that there are three different people. One's going to be a servant, the other may be enlarged and dwell, and may they live in in the home of this family, because this family is from which all salvation will come. And it ends, interestingly enough, with death, the chapter, doesn't it? With this Noah. Now, for what it's worth, if I do the math, it's just something to consider and for the fun of it. Next week, we're going to look at, we're going to take out maps and all kinds of stuff to show how God populates the entire world with these kids. But I do find it interesting, if I do the math on this, this Shem character... Um, He's going to live from 1556, we know that from his birth, to 2102, somewhere between 2102 and 2158. Abraham will, live, will be born in 2008. And again, starting with zero as creation time. And he'll live for 175 years. Noah will die, according to this, two years before Abraham is born. I, I think that's interesting. But his son, and it's very possible that Abraham could have had conversations with Noah's own son. Uh, that's a pretty radical thought. Now, God did give us ten generations in chapter 5 from Seth. He'll give us ten generations leading us to Abraham. I do think that's kind of cool and pertinent. Uh, in our text, let me just kind of lay this out as we go to prayer.
In the end of it all, even in this new world, there will be a kingdom in battle. And the kingdom will be whether what part of you wants to live like Cain and what part of you wants to live like the new person God intended you to be. And the bottom line of it, of course, God wants every part of the, the part of you that every part of us that has Egypt still in us to die. Which is our value system, the way we view each other, the way we view ourselves, the way we view what success is, the way we look at this world. He wants it all to change. Every, every, every aspect of us he wants changed. Because he wants to create a place where we can be in, in, in wants us to be in a position to be fruitful. To be someone who actually the world is changed because of. And the world is going to be changed because of you one way or another. Either you're going to add to the death factor or you're going to add to the life factor. That's what he makes clear in this chapter. Either you're going to be like Cain and add to the death factor of which you'll give account or you'll add to the life factor. And by the way, God says, I want to bless you and make you fruitful. So this isn't an issue of my intent or my weakness. God speaking. He's looking, I'll bless you. I'll make you fruitful. The issue is which, what, which side do you want to take on this? So where are you today? Are you in a position where you're like, Lord, you know what? Whatever you want, I'm going to be yours. Go ahead and make me so fruitful because that's what I really want. But let me ask you this last question. If God were to do this, and he tells us, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it never produces fruit. It all started, by the way, with the greatest gift, and that's Jesus the Christ who died on the cross as the first fruits of those who have died and rose again to pay for all of your sin and shame. You recognize you're defective. Are you willing to accept the gift of Jesus Christ? Have you even accepted this gift? Because if you haven't, Nothing. I mean, it's, it's like me asking you to pull a cart without giving you a horse to pull it. It all starts at the cross. Have you accepted that gift of Jesus Christ? If you heard nothing else, man, hear that, please. Because when you do that, God will be the one to change you from the inside out. He'll put the motor in you to make you go. He'll be the motor in you to make you go. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for the gift of this time and for this text, how glorious it is, Lord, and how <coughs> radical it is, Lord, to look at this text and to see what the new world looks like. A world, Lord, where, where clearly you call us to be fruitful. And I recognize in that fruitfulness, people might dread us. And we recognize as Christians, people dread us. But you promised that's just going to be the way it is in this new world, that there will still be people who aren't interested, that are still busy trying to propagate sin and, and sort of promote the nakedness factor. And there we are back to the nakedness and drunkenness. And, 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 and you told us you'd give account for violence. And God, I just pray that you make us people different. That when the world looks, they don't just see people who, who used to be something that they enjoy or think they enjoy, but don't do that anymore. Show us, Lord, how to represent the new world, one where we walk in and blessing with you and are fruitful and celebrate a God who put a rainbow in the sky to remind us of that intimacy that you want with us, that you created us to be with you intimately. And I knew Adam knew that. I knew his kids knew that. And yet even someone would choose to rebel. And yet, God, I want to know that in my heart. I want to know that you did. You created me for a purpose. And fundamentally, the most primary purpose is to be with you, to enjoy you, and for you to enjoy me. So God, I pray right now for every person in this fellowship, myself included, God, that today you remove from us anything that makes us drunk, intoxicated, our mind is blurred, our eyes are blinded. Remove that. 
soberest up to the reality that you offer us the gift of Jesus at the cross to pay for who we are in our defect. And yet in that, he rose again to offer us a new life on the other side. Thank you that the gospel doesn't end with you dying on the cross, Jesus, but with an empty tomb where we can see the new life and you ascending to prepare a place for us that where you are, we may be also when you come to receive us to yourself. So I pray, Lord, you change us right now in every way that that, that we don't try to drag any of the old world into the new. But Lord, rather that we would be people saying, I belong to you, I'm, I'm done, I'm done with that old place. Make me someone, make me what you want me to be now. And with that, Lord, if you know within this room, if there would be any or many who have not said yes to your gift of Jesus on the cross, but today recognize that they need you. They recognize today that, that you're willing to pay for their sins and that you want to change them from the inside out. And they may not even have a desire to, to leave all of this stuff yet. But Lord, I know that if they say yes to you, you can put that desire in them. And the appetites that they've been eating from the wrong tree, show them, Lord, how you can finally satisfy their hunger. And Jesus, you promised us that. If we came hungry, you would fulfill. And if we came thirsty, you would satiate. So Lord, do that. And if you recognize your need for Jesus today, and you're not sure whether you've ever accepted the gift or you're sure you haven't, but today you recognize that you need to, pray this prayer with me right now. I'm going to pray it, and if you agree, I ask you to say a very bold and confident amen. And what you're saying is, I agree, let those words be my words, let that prayer be my prayer. And here it is, God, I recognize I am a sinner, I'm defective. And I recognize that makes me guilty before you. But I also believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross to pay for everything I've ever done because it's blood for blood. And in that, you shed your blood because I myself am guilty. And in that, now I just accept that gift of your payment on my behalf. But also, I recognize that as you rose again from the grave, that you offer me a brand new life, a new world. You want to deliver me from the darkness I'm in to a brand new place. And I pray right now you would do that. You would deliver me. Change my heart. Change my mind. Make me somebody that is fruitful to you and not just bringing forth death into this world. So I confess you also as my, as not only as my Savior, but also as my Master and my Lord. So have me now. I'm yours. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. Well, Lord, I pray that you would continue to just bless this fellowship. I pray that you would continue to grow us. You would continue to walk with us and draw us near. And thank you for the privilege of being able to serve you here. So draw us now as we pray together. In Jesus' name, amen. I encourage you, last thing. First of all, thank you. Thank you so much for the privilege it is to teach the word to you. And the honor it is to be your pastor. Just take a couple minutes, grab a couple people. Just pray that God will put into your life now what He's shown you in this time. God bless you.